0: All right. So as we jump back into our study of Thanksgiving, allow me just to remind us of why this topic is worth our time by reading a quotation from Sam Crabtree. And it's rather strongly stated. In fact, when I first read it at the beginning of his book on gratitude, I was surprised at how strongly he stated it. Um, but I think it's, it's just helpful to bring it back before our minds. Here it is. You can see it on the screen. Thankfulness is neither trivial nor inconsequential. On this one quality pivots the difference between maturity and immaturity. Gratitude is pivotal in whether I will be given over to folly. It is decisive. More than a mere word, gratitude reveals each person's core, his priorities, his presuppositions, his understanding of God and his ways. Between gratefulness to God and indifference toward Him lies the distinction between wisdom and folly, the pivot. Everyone's entire future swings like a hinge on whether thankfulness is lubricated to swing easily or if it is ignored, becoming encrusted by the rust and corrosion of our heart's indifference, bitterness, or self-inflated sense of entitlement. Thankfulness wins or loses the war for your future. Wow, pretty strong, huh? So, as we continue our excursus about the place of thanksgiving in Paul's theology, today I want to finish the theology portion. Um, and then we'll take some time in the coming up weeks, the upcoming weeks, uh, to talk through and think through kind of the practical outworking of this in our daily lives. As I mentioned at the beginning of this, it's so easy to come to the scriptures. To see something like what we've been seeing about Thanksgiving over the past couple weeks and then to, to move on. You live busy lives. There are other things you guys are doing in your own Bible study, things you're hearing from the pulpit and to look back you know, maybe six months from now, you read an article you see a blog post, you hear a sermon about thankfulness and you think yeah, that's right. We spent weeks thinking about this six months ago and I'm not sure anything's actually changed in my life because of that. And so I'm hopeful that by slowing down and over the next couple weeks, really thinking through what does this look like in terms of its practical outworking, we'll be able to avoid that so that we can look back in a year and say, wow, there's a marked difference in my life in terms of gratitude, beginning with that time that we spent uh, kind of a concerted time looking at the scriptures regarding gratitude. So we'll take some time to do that uh, in the coming several weeks. Things like looking at what are the hindrances to thanksgiving, why don't we do that, what are the lies we're believing, all that kind of stuff we'll try to work through. So we got here to this long excursus because in 1 Thessalonians 1-2, Paul begins to recount to the Thessalonians the thanks he gives to God for God's work in their lives. So we've paused to think first, this first lesson we came to, the priority of thanksgiving what a priority it was for paul and we looked at this from three angles there was the prominent place of thanksgiving in paul's letters the prominent place of thanksgiving in paul's life and the prominent place of thanksgiving in paul's theology and we're currently in the midst of that third one we looked at some texts in paul's letters that reveal the place of thanksgiving and how paul understands how god is glorified And then we zoomed out from just Paul's letters and looked at a theology of thanksgiving in the scriptures in general, but particularly in the Old Testament, and considered how that influenced Paul's thinking, particularly his assumptions, the things that were under the surface that we don't see. He doesn't explain, but he assumes. And then when we read how important, when we we get glimpses of how important thanksgiving is to him in his letters, kind of left scratching our heads, where, where, where'd this come from, Paul? You aren't explaining this, you're assuming this. And I think that we've seen from the Old Testament some of that, some of how Paul got there, why it was so important for him, how these were part, this was a part of his assumptions. And I've structured this study kind of around the temporal categories of past, present, and future. Thanksgiving in relation to the past, Thanksgiving in relation to the present, and Thanksgiving in relation to the future. And we have completed Thanksgiving in relation to the past and the present. And I've reviewed several times what we discussed regarding Thanksgiving in the past. So I won't spend time now to review that. But we just got into Thanksgiving in the present last week. So let's just real briefly review those three considerations that we looked at regarding Thanksgiving in relation to the present. First, we saw that thanksgiving is situated for Paul in the category of ethics. It's situated right alongside all kinds of others, moral, ethical do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, the things that believers ought to be putting off. It would be like ingratitude. um, And then putting on, thankfulness is right alongside those, alongside a lot of other ethical issues. Then there's number two, the second consideration, that thanksgiving in the present spills over into other good works as it motivates them and then thirdly we saw that thanksgiving in the sense of remembering god's past gracious deeds and praising him for them does not need to be confined to expressing that just to god but should be shared even with others we saw that both in the old testament and the new testament and today we'll consider thanksgiving in relation to the future and then very briefly consider ingratitude kind of the opposite side of all this ingratitude in the old testament and in paul so jumping into thanksgiving in relation to the future have you thought much about that how does thanksgiving relate to the future initially it might be a bit of a head scratcher how how can that be in what sense would there be a relationship there might be a little more obvious how there can be a connection between thanksgiving in the past that's probably the most obvious We saw last week how there's a bit of a connection between Thanksgiving and the present. But then Thanksgiving in the future, how are those related? Well, in the Old Testament, there's just a plethora of promises. In fact, we might even say promises are a core part of what the covenants are all about. God promises something and then he he makes that promise more solemn by the swearing of an oath. And basically that process of making a promise more solemn by swearing an oath is what we call making a covenant. And so there are these promises that are at the heart of the covenants. God's promised to do something for his people and guaranteed it. Really what he's going to do in the future is kind of all about him redeeming his people, rescuing his creation, restoring and completing his purpose in creation. In many ways, it's coming back to him Of fully implementing his kingship over the earth, his reign on the earth through his vice regents, humans. And really, we failed so terribly that he had to come himself in the form of a human as the perfect image-bearer and do that. But then through our incorporation with Christ, we're able to join him in actually being restored to that vocation in doing that. And so as he's promised to do that, and he's working that out. At the core of all that is just this promise about what he's going to do in the future. And so in explaining what relevance there is between thanksgiving for what God has done in the past and trusting him for the future, I'm going to start with kind of some more generic considerations, and then we'll look at some specific considerations in some specific texts. So first, some generic considerations. Consider this. If God, and he has, if God has acted mightily in the past for the good of his people— And in the advancement of his redemptive purposes, then those past demonstrations of faithfulness, or we might say those past demonstrations of his dependability, those past demonstrations of his trustworthiness, those can and should fuel our hope regarding the future and our faith in God to keep his promises for the future. Well, that sounds nice and easy, right? Okay, yes, we look back, we make a calculation. God has been faithful to his promises in the past. Therefore, I can be sure he'll keep his promises in the future. But we know that it's not quite that simple. It's not a simple once-and-done calculation. I can see that the Lord's been faithful in the past, so I'm going to trust him. No, no, no. In fact, on both fronts, we struggle, and it's a daily battle. We struggle, and it's a daily battle because on the front of Thanksgiving— we regularly forget all that God has done and the faithfulness he's demonstrated in the past. And then on the front of the future, we regularly find ourselves doubting that God would be faithful, right? For us, the matters of the heart are a daily battle, a moment-by-moment battle. It's never kind of a one-and-done, I've settled that in my mind and now I move on. And that side of our experience that relates to trusting the Lord for the future, that is the side of our experience that relates to trusting the Lord for the future, but now, as relates to our thanking him for the past, as I mentioned, it's really the same sort of thing. We, just, we don't just simply remember that and keep going. That's why we have this whole discussion about thanksgiving, because we find ourselves regularly drifting away from that. So thanksgiving to the Lord is an ongoing discipline of reminding ourselves of all the Lord has done and thanking him for it. And those two sides the vigilance required in remembering what the Lord has done in the past and thanking him for it, and the vigilance required in remembering what the Lord has promised and that he is faithful and trusting him to keep his promises, those two sides are directly related. They rise and fall together, we might say. Our remembrance of what the Lord has done in the past, our remembrance of what the Lord has done in the past and thanking him for it will fuel our trust in the Lord to keep his promises for the future. Likewise, our forgetfulness of what the Lord has done in the past and our failure to thank him for it will erode our trust in the Lord to keep his promises in the future. Here's another way to say it. There's such a direct connection that you can almost be sure that where there's someone who's genuinely characterized by gratitude to the Lord for all he has done... I can almost be certain that's going to be a person who has things like anxiety under control in their life because they're trusting the Lord. Or that someone, regardless of how joyful they seem, it might seem like they're thankful that if they're perpetually struggling with trusting the Lord, that I can be sure that they, they aren't someone who's regularly remembering the Lord's past kindnesses and thanking him for them. So here's essentially the, the main point, the thesis. The thesis. Thanksgiving for what God has done in the past nurtures trust for him in the future. Thanksgiving for what God has done in the past nurtures trust in him for the future. Our thanksgiving to the Lord for what he has done in the past relates to the future, not in the sense that whether or not we're trusting him or thanking him affects the future. The Lord's going to keep his promises whether we're thanking him for what he's done in the past or not. But it does affect our trust in the Lord in the present to keep his promises about the future. To the extent that we excel in remembering the Lord's past kindnesses and thanking him for them, in equal measure, we will excel in setting our hopes on the Lord's future promises and trusting him to fulfill those promises. Thanksgiving for God's past covenant faithfulness nurtured trust among his covenant people and trust in his covenantal faithfulness listen to this quotation when the past is remembered in thanksgiving trust for god to act again is developed and nurtured if thanksgiving looks back to god's faithfulness it almost spontaneously becomes at the end asking for the future Yeah, see that? As you you remember, the Lord is faithful to everything He promised in the past. We begin to trust Him and even petition Him for things related to the future because we can trust Him. There are two things about the Lord that we must remember when we thank, or that we are really remembering when we thank Him, and that are important to trusting Him for the future. And these are simple ones. We've even talked about this earlier in our discussion of Thanksgiving. One is His intention, His goodness. He will be faithful in that his intention is to keep his promises, and that won't change. Right? We can know that he intends to keep his promises. That won't change. That's his goodness. So, that's one piece we must believe. There must be conviction about that. But then there's also the other side, which is his power. He will be faithful in that he has the power to effect what he has promised. For example, it's, it's great to know that he intends to keep his promises, but that is of little consolation if he might be frustrated in the execution of that. He may have every good intention but may not actually be able to carry that out. Well, that would be a problem. That's number one without number two, right? When we have both, he has goodness, he intends to keep his promises, the will to do so, and he has the power to do so. Now, that's the formula when we believe those two things. To help fuel our trust in Him for the future, so that's kind of the generic uh, perspective on how Thanksgiving relates to the future. But now let's get a bit more specific by looking at some specific texts here. So grab your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter seven, seven verse seventeen. Deuteronomy seven seventeen. So Moses says here to the Israelites, Deuteronomy seven seventeen. if you should say in your heart, so he's anticipating a situation in the future, this might be a temptation coming to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? What should you do when that temptation occurs to you? He says, you shall not be afraid of them. In other words, don't listen to it. It's not true. Don't believe that that lie you shall not be afraid of them but what should you do on the positive side we 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 often fight temptations with commands right the lord says don't be anxious i'm feeling anxiety let me just stop it right just stop it stop being anxious repeat some of those verses about not being anxious but what we really need the power to obey that is found in the truth that undermines it cuts off the lie that fuels the anxiety right And that's what the Lord gives here in verse 18. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. And then he goes on the subsequent verses and recounts all that he did in Egypt to demonstrate his faithfulness. You're tempted to doubt these people look greater than me. How would we ever conquer them? Remember what the Lord did against all odds previously and trust him to keep his promises And notice, too, that this is looking forward to a situation when circumstances strongly oppose trusting the Lord for the future. And that's helpful because sometimes we think that those trying moments are the exceptional moments, the times where surely this is a time where it's okay that I'm not trusting the Lord, right? This is particularly difficult. No, those are the moments, right, when we need truths like this, right, when we need to be called back to trusting him. It's precisely in trying moments that we need to remember what the Lord has done in the past and thank him for it. And then even beyond texts like this one, I'm going to try to keep these brief. So like one text for each of the different angles I'm looking at this from. So in some Old Testament texts, we find that God will do in the future is so settled that there's already thanks being offered to him in the present about what he's yet to do. Let me show you one, Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. We'll see here that something that's prophesied, the Lord promises to do in the future, he's calling his people already to rejoice over, to thank him for. Isaiah 52, I'll begin here in verse 8. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Look at verse 9. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. So he's calling on these inanimate waste places, kind of metaphorically, to begin rejoicing. Why would they shout joyfully? The second half of verse 9. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So you see at the end of verse 8, the Lord restores Zion. The end of verse 9, he has redeemed Jerusalem. It's helpful to understand the context in which Isaiah is writing. Isaiah is writing over 100 years before Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. So he's both prophesying Jerusalem's destruction and prophesying beyond that its restoration. So even the destruction he's kind of telling them, here's a promise to be delivered from, is still that destruction's not even realized yet. But he's prophesied that. Now he's looking beyond that for the redemption beyond that, that lies beyond that. And he's saying, even in the midst of that, notice he's telling waste places. So clearly, Jerusalem hasn't been restored yet. This isn't a praise that happens after Jerusalem's been restored, because the waste places doing the rejoicing. It's the it's in the midst of the destruction that they can be praising the Lord for what he's yet to do, but what he's promised to do because they're trusting he will do it. You see that? So that's another way in which thanksgiving can relate to the future because we can actually thank God for the future. When we're trusting he will actually do what he said he will do. Now, let's move into Paul and see how he does this. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1. So as is typical for Paul in the opening of his letters, he shares with them his thanksgiving to God for them. And we find that here in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. So listen to the flow of thought here. Verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. So he's thanking God concerning them for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. And he's going to elaborate on that verse five, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice his confidence here. Verse eight. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? So notice that he goes from thanking God for what he's done for them in the past to turning around and telling them with confidence that God will complete this, what God will do in them. How did he move from thanking God for what he's already done to then telling them that he is so certain God will finish this work in them because those two go together, right? Thanking God for what he's done in the past fuels confidence that he'll complete what he's already begun, that he'll do what he said he will do. So it's a very smooth transition, and the principle is right there at the beginning of verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's seen what God's done in the past. He knows God's faithful. He can be certain that God will complete what he's begun. He'll do what he has promised. Notice here another one. 1 Thess chapter 4, verse 14. Go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Thess chapter 4, verse
1: 14.
0: Paul writes, I know we're jumping into the middle of the context here, but for the sake of moving quickly, I'm not going to take time to develop it too much. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so he's looking back to something God has done in the past, even so, God will, looking forward to the future, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So we find here that Paul's saying remembrance of Christ's resurrection fuels faith in the believer's future resurrection. As we remember that God did this, he asked a condition, right? If God did this, if we believe God did this, and we do, then we can be confident that he will resurrect believers as well. Again, a connection between knowing what God's done in the past, remembering it, thanking him for that, and then faith for God to fulfill what he's begun but not yet completed. Here's another one. Go to Romans chapter 8. This is a passage many of you will be familiar with, a wonderful, very encouraging and a passage i regularly go to to remind myself of the lord's good intentions romans eight thirty two. paul writes he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things So think about how Paul does that. He begins by considering what God did for us in Jesus. He sent his own son, sacrificed him for our sakes. And then he moves on that that basis really from the greater to the lesser. If God has done this, if he would give his own son for us, then he says we can conclude that we have every reason to believe he'll give us anything else because everything else would be less than that if he's already given his own son for us to redeem us, and now we're no longer his enemies, but we're actually his children, why would he not give us so many fewer things, so many lesser things? Again, the principle, when we look back to what God has already done, grateful for that, we're fueled to trust him for the future. You guys see how that logic, that kind of flow comes through in all these texts, even if it's not right there on the surface, that's really what's driving it. And now, go back to 1 Corinthians. I know it's forward, but we were there at the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is one where Paul, like Isaiah does in Isaiah 52, actually thanks the Lord for something that has not yet been realized, something that still lies in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All the texts in Paul we've looked at up to this point Have been texts in which trust in God for the future is encouraged by remembering and thanking Him for what He's done in the past. But here we see that Paul also thanks God for what He will do in the future, as we saw in Isaiah 52. So, chapter 15, verse 57, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the victory He's referring to? He's referring to the victory that is ours in our bodily resurrection. Something that has not yet been realized. And he's saying, thanks be to God for that. Has not yet been realized, but he has been spending most of this chapter considering the resurrection of Christ, which happened in the past and the resurrection in the future of all those who are in Christ been talking about these matters and then here at the end of this chapter meditating upon what God's done in Christ the resurrection there and the promise he's given that he will raise all those who are in Christ in the future coming to the end of this chapter verse 57 he's looking forward now in hope to what God will do for us in our resurrection confident of this because of what he has already done in the resurrection of Christ in the past so he can't in the present Thank God for a future event, the future resurrection. And then note that verse 58, this is sort of extraneous, but verse 58, he writes, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So notice how even that trust in God for the future that flows out of remembering and thanking him for his past faithfulness has present-day implications not just for our thanksgiving or for our trust, but for our actions, right? If you don't believe there's going to be a future resurrection, then there's going to be no recompense for you for all the labor you put forward for Christ's sake now if it's not rewarded here and now. But if there is a resurrection then there's so much more beyond the grave, right? And so that's why he says, therefore. There's a connection there, an inference. We believe that we will be raised. Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It will be rewarded in the resurrection. So we can see how all these themes are coming together gratitude is not only fueling faith in the future, but that faith about what God will do in the future is fueling present obedience, present faithfulness in the midst of hardship. So in terms of kind of summarizing these aspects of thanksgiving in relation to the future, we've seen in the Old Testament how there's both these, uh, this connection between remembering what the Lord's done in the past and that fueling faith that he will keep his promises in the future. And even, as we saw in Isaiah 52, in the present, thanking him for things he has not yet done in faith. And then we saw both of those themes in Paul as well. So now as we conclude our study of Paul's theology of thanksgiving, having looked at both the perspective on thanksgiving Paul would have learned from the Old Testament and how that perspective came through in his writings, the last thing I want us to consider is the theme of ingratitude. we have been looking a lot at gratitude or thanksgiving. Now, what about The reverse ingratitude first in the old testament then in paul so ingratitude in the old testament what's one of the significant places in the old testament that comes to your mind when you think about ingratitude in the old testament exodus Exodus? What, what was happening how was that manifesting itself the grumbling yeah totally so grumbling is one of the those major ones that's right But then when you stop to think about that, well, what is the connection between ingratitude and grumbling? I mean, on the one hand, ingratitude seems like it's failure to thank God for something good he's done for us. Grumbling is complaining about some good he's not done for us or something that seems like it's not good he has done for us, right? So in some sense, it seems like they're for two different scenarios, but I don't think it actually is. What is that connection? Well, within the context of the covenant, God has promised to care for. He has promised to provide for his people. He has consistently done that, and even in remarkable ways. As the scriptures continually remind Israel, he, he redeemed them and provided for them in remarkable ways, both in the Exodus and in the 40 years of the wilderness. Israel's responsibility... As they're God's redeemed people putting him at the center is to trust and obey him. As they remember and thank him for what he's done, their trust in him to provide for their needs is nurtured. But if they forget all he's done and his promise to care for him, the result will be grumbling. So it flows really from ingratitude. When, you remember, when you're forgetting, failing to remember, that God has cared for us in the past. Then you're going to grumble about present circumstances, but that's not going to happen when your heart is filled with remembrance and thanksgiving to God for what he's done to care for you in the past. So in this way, grumbling is the result of ingratitude. And interestingly, as we'll see, not only is the grumbling related to ingratitude, but it is identified as rebellion and idolatry. let's look at some passages here and i'm not going to go specifically to the exodus passages or the numbers passage that speak about this but later passages that actually give kind of some commentary on what was happening so first let's go to psalm 78 I only have three Old Testament passages for us. So if you're entering that stage of, like, page-flipping fatigue, (laughs) stick with me. Psalm 78. So this is a long psalm. I'm not going to read all of it. Let me just kind of walk through some high points here. First, in verses 40 to 41... The psalmist describes Israel's rebellion, likely including their grumbling. Look at verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Then he seems to explain the reason for this rebellion in verses 42 to 53. (coughs) Namely, he can kind of summarize it as not remembering all that he had done for them. I'm not going to read all of this, but look at verse 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. And he goes through and catalogs all the manifestations of the Lord's power. Verse 43, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of zone and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. And it continues on through all that he did there in the Exodus. Why did they rebel? Because they did not remember what the Lord has done. So the takeaway is, ingratitude, the psalmist is telling us in his commentary of what happened there, he says ingratitude leads to rebellion. As we fail to remember what the Lord has done, that paves the road to rebellion. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. 106. This is another fairly long one, so I'm not going to read all of it. But first look at verse six, verses six and seven. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but what's the opposite of remembering the abundant kindnesses? But they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So rebellion follows on the heels of not remembering or ingratitude, we could say. Then continue on in verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. So, notice what we're coming back to. After all of that, all of God's kindness, their initial praise. But no, then, verse 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Right? Clearly, that's now referring to the craving, the tempting God in the desert, to the grumbling. Regarding water, regarding food. So notice their sin against God is rooted in forgetting his works. And then look down at verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. That's a different term for Sinai. That's the term that Deuteronomy primarily uses for Mount Sinai. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior. Who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. So again, notice that their idolatry in verses 19 and 20 is closely associated with not remembering the Lord's past redemption. In verses 21 and 22, their ingratitude leads to idolatry. Third passage from the Old Testament, the final one, Nehemiah 9. So go back to Nehemiah 9, just a few books prior to the Psalter. And interestingly, these these texts are all texts where the author takes some time to recount Israel's history with a lot of biblical theological commentary. We see that in some psalms, like those two psalms, and then Nehemiah 9 is another instance where we find this. So in Nehemiah 9, just kind of give you the the high-level orientation, in the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, they praise the Lord. Then in verses 7 through 15, they recount the Lord's many kindnesses toward them. And then, picking up there in verse 16, listen to this. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So despite the many kindnesses of the Lord to them, they rebelled, they were stubborn, they would not obey, and this is related to not remembering the Lord's wondrous deeds. Isn't that interesting how many of these texts commenting on Israel's grumbling trace that ingratitude to their rebellion and their idolatry that is bound up with that grumbling? So what's the takeaway here? from these passages about ingratitude in the old testament one is that ingratitude leads to rebellion against the lord that seems like if i were to state that in the abstract apart from having looked at these passages that probably seems like an overstatement doesn't it surely this is like a far-fetched slippery slope argument but you can see in the passages it's directly linked that rebellion follows from ingratitude. And then a second observation about ingratitude in the Old Testament is this, whether Israel remembers what the Lord has done or forgets is the decisive issue, the fulcrum, for whether she will worship the Lord and enjoy the blessings of the covenant or whether she will rebel against him. That's what those texts present. That's weighty ingratitude is a significant issue and now with that background it's no wonder how paul explains things in two passages in his letters the first one we've already briefly looked at from the gratitude angle now we'll look at it from the ingratitude angle and that's romans chapter one so turn with me to romans chapter one Jumping into the context here that goes from verses 18 through 32, but I think most of you are somewhat familiar with the flow of thought here. Verse 21, Paul writes, For even though they knew God, this is all creation, people who know God, the true God, only through what he's revealed in general revelation in creation, but they still know him. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools. And what else did they do? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's called idolatry, right? So Paul's connections here aren't drawn in a vacuum. He's simply applying Old Testament principles he knows well. We saw in verse 21, that ingratitude is parallel to failing to worship God, which builds on one of those early principles we saw, that for Paul, thanksgiving is essentially praising God. It's essentially worship. And if one side of the coin is ingratitude and failing to worship God, the other side of the coin, meaning what's the opposite of of, uh, gratitude, of thanking God? You know, is it, is it religious neutrality? <clears throat> no, it's idolatry. That's remarkable, because when we fail to thank the Lord for things, we probably tend to think, oh, it's an omission, right? Not a move toward idolatry. And here we see those same things we saw in the Old Testament. Ingratitude is the failure to acknowledge God and worship him as creator of all. In other words, when something good comes my way, who does it come from? It comes from God, right? But when I fail to thank him for it, I'm assuming, implicitly at least, that something else is to be thanked for that. Whether it's myself or someone else who is God's means of providing that for me, but I end up giving that worship that's due only to God to someone else. To worship God, to live rightly oriented to him as the center as we were created to do includes thanking him to forget him and his deeds is to be oriented to something else meaning when we're forgetful we aren't simply kind of passively neglecting something we're actually oriented in our attention to something else there's something else that's become the center of our thinking of our life making something else the center which is idolatry So ingratitude is not a matter of innocent oversight. It's a matter of idolatry. And then here's one more passage. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. It's the last one we will look at. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, Verses 1 to 5, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be, and here comes, the anticipated list of the most heinous things we can think of. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and here it is, ungrateful. Like, how does that fit into the list? Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, Irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Think about that. Paul says, if you see an ungrateful person, avoid them. Whoa, like (laughs) surely that's overreaction. But now I think against the Old Testament backdrop, we can understand a bit better why Paul would take it so seriously. So this quick look at ingratitude is really just what we would have expected to find after all that we've seen in kind of this biblical theology of gratitude. Thanksgiving is a matter of worship and obedience. Therefore, it's not surprising that ingratitude is understood in relation to idolatry and rebellion. Wow. So in this kind of theology of Paul's on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is a bigger deal than I thought going into it. And it now makes sense as to why Paul treats Thanksgiving as such a weighty matter and why Thanksgiving was such a priority for him. Whether it's in his commands or whether in just his his own example in his letter, so regularly taking time to share with people the thanksgiving he gives to God on their behalf. And as we continue on through 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, and see that again and again Paul returns to thanking God for them, it now makes a lot more sense. It will make a lot more sense. We'll understand why that wasn't a waste of Paul's five chapters in 1 Thessalonians to spend much of chapters 1 through 3 sharing with them his thanksgiving to God for them. And knowing that it is this important, we'll do well to do what we're going to do in the next couple weeks, spending some time practically thinking about how do we grow in this area, right? Because the Lord wants us to grow. I've pulled out a number of texts, particularly the latter half, about ingratitude that are weighty, right? They put it in the appropriate context, We need to understand what the Lord thinks about these things. And yet, we we know these things and we need to hear these things not simply to, to bludgeon us, but to remind us that we want to grow in gratitude, right? And the Lord is one who, through all of his past actions toward us, has demonstrated that he is a gracious God, who even for ingrates like me, he is willing to forgive us, he has forgiven us, and help us to grow in gratitude, to worship him as we ought, right? And so we want to grow in that. But the first step is to see kind of the weightiness of it and, and what Paul means by it and why it's important. And so with that foundation, we're not only understanding Paul's letters better, but hopefully, I pray, that we will all be motivated to think deeply in the next couple of weeks about what will that look like to put this into practice and to try to take tangible steps in that direction. Questions or comments? So, yeah.
1: As you were talking, we'll probably get into this next week, I, I was just realizing, even in Israel's case, but in my own case, how often I separate the circumstances that are going on in my life mm. from God's character, mm. either his sovereignty, kind of going back to what you said at the beginning, doubting either his sovereign control or mm-hmm. his goodness. Yep. In something as simple as the weather, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm using this example because I just did it. You know, like, if I was creator, I wouldn't choose a 90-degree heat this week, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, that is that me usurping God's yeah. sovereignty, yeah, yeah. right? Even in the smallest things. Yep. Isn't that where ingratitude starts? Totally, yeah. Um, you know, it's an affront to his sovereignty.
0: Yeah. Or his wisdom He's, in that case, right? His wisdom, yeah. still still being confident, he is the one who did it that way. But he must be foolish for having done that, because I would know better. Yeah, I have done
1: that.
0: yeah. Go ahead. I
1: think to carry that on, just something that was, I think, is implicit in what you were going over and like having us to see here. You mentioned the comment related to you know, anxiety mm-hmm. Yeah. somebody who maybe struggles with that, struggles with thankfulness. Yeah. Uh, also, I think for me, but at times I can, I can, I can have that issue. Totally. Looking, I think the implicit there saying not only do I trust the Lord for the future that is coming, He is going to confirm or has confirmed all those promises, and, and will bring them to their end one day. Yeah. It's not the future that I think I want to see mm-hmm. at times. It is. It is the is forcing me or not forcing me but motivating me to see the future that it's his goodness and his plan his wisdom i think exactly what Bobby said say the future that i trust in is not the one that i think i want even though i really do want that but getting me to have the root being a worship of the god who is wise enough to give us exactly what we need
0: totally in the ways it means that he to freed that yeah that's so good I mean, think about Israel's case in the wilderness. It's easy to distance ourselves from it because we're familiar with it. But they're to the point that they're desperate for water. Like a pretty basic need, right? I I never was like a psychology major, but I think in terms of the hierarchy of needs, like water, it's pretty (laughs) basic, right? (laughs) Um, So, yes, water. They need water. They've been without water for some time. And then right around the corner, without food. Like these are pretty understandable things to be concerned about. And that's what they're beginning to grumble about. What did the Lord want them to do though? He wanted them to say, Lord, you know what we need and we're going to trust you to provide what we need. We are simply obeying your instructions. You led us into the wilderness. I know that you'll provide for us. So even though it seems like we're to the extremity now, we can't go too much longer (laughs) without water, without food. I'm confident you must have something right around the corner. And so we're going to keep trusting you. Another hour, another day, keep trusting you in that. The text of Exodus is clear. He did that to test them, to see that in that moment, would they trust him or would they lean on their own understanding? And they leaned on their own understanding. Surely the Lord's not going to come through for us as he had promised. But that's important to remember because you're right. Those trials come, those circumstances that are different than what we would imagine is best for us. And it's in those moments that we have to trust the Lord and even give thanks to the Lord for it, right? Lord, I know that in your wisdom and your goodness and your love, you've tailored this for me. And so I can thank you for this difficult circumstance because I know you're going to work it out in a way that's going to please you. And even my trust in you in the midst of this circumstance is showing your worth, putting that on display for others to see. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks, Jade. Tim also needs to comment.
1: Please think, personally. This whole concept of attitude, gratitude for me is often just really, like a really horrible assessment of what I deserve. Yeah. Totally. I think Paul does it a lot. And this also point back to what we once mm-hmm. if We don't deserve anything. Um, yeah. So just have, to have, obviously, to have Christ is incomprehensible, but even just to have rest in our lungs, uh, just these simple things, to have that paradigm. And of out and just lose sight of who I once was Yep. what you deserve. Yeah, yeah. Deserve nothing. Yeah, yeah. I I could just, I mean, like you said, moment by moment, we
0: could just lose sight of that. Totally, we do, right? Yeah. Yeah. We do lose sight of it, yeah. And this has been so helpful for me because I'm right there. In fact, I was yesterday in my office over there working on this, and I get a text that wasn't what I wanted to hear. (laughs) with a question I didn't want to hear, and I immediately started grumbling in my heart. (laughs) And then I come back to the lesson, I'm like, oh, that was a test for me and I failed it. (laughs) So I can totally sympathize, yeah. All right, good, let me pray for us. Lord, we do love you, and we thank you for those theological truths that are the underpinning of our gratitude, that you are a loving God who knows what we need, and it's not always what we think we need. and you are a God who orders all things according to your purpose. There is no rogue molecule that's operating under the curse apart from your sovereign oversight. you you control all of it. and so we can in any circumstance trust you that whatever's come our way is something that's come our way under Your supervision, under your sovereign care, under your not only awareness, but even your direction. And so I pray, Lord, that you would keep bringing us back to those things. We know that the battle to live as you would have us to is a battle to think rightly, to believe true things, to believe the truth, and to put out of our minds lies. And so I pray, Lord, that in this area, in these situations where we're Uh, prone to be forgetful to not thank you for the good things or not thank you for the difficult things we know that it's a matter of believing truth rather than the lies and so i pray you would help us to do that and i pray lord particularly for us in coming weeks as we think through this that you would help us to grow with just the practical outworking of this that we can look back in a year and say there is a marked difference in my life from that point on because of the way that you lord have worked in our hearts helping us to grow in gratitude. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.